0: numinous podcast with Carmen spaniola
1: hi there and welcome to the numinous podcast where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life my guest on the show today is not exactly everyday folk his name is john michael greer and he's the former grand arch druid of the ancient order of druids in america John is also a longtime Golden Dawn initiate and scholar of the Western mystery traditions, and he is the author of a number of books on a wide range of subjects, from secret societies, to peak oil, to ritual magic, to the decline of industrial societies. And in fact, one of the books that has been the most formative in my life is his book, The Long Descent. Today we're talking about our spiritual lives, particularly ritual and practice, in the context of cultural decline. I've read somewhere in your work that you describe initiation as a combination of ritual and practice. So talking first about ritual, there's an interesting thing that I find happening, which is where, you know, we, I, I, have ritual involved in my life in many ways. One example would be feng shui. So I will arrange things according to the traditions of feng shui in my home. And uh, I sometimes find that that works really well. But for example, right now, my the the corner of my baguas, it's called the corner of my home that represents um, money and prosperity is totally crammed. Like it's just (laughs) so cluttered. It's totally against, it's very bad feng shui. Let's put it that way. And yet I'm experiencing the most wealth and flow I ever have in my life. So sometimes it seems to matter and sometimes it doesn't. And that makes me think about then issues of, you know, the placebo effect or superstition. So I want to ask you about that. Why is it that sometimes ritual seems to really work and really matter, and it actually makes things happen in your life, and then other times it doesn't, like the the exact opposite is happening, and it, it doesn't seem to help manifest or make any material change.
0: Well, the thing is, that's true of everything. Um, sometimes when you go fishing, you catch fish, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you climb into your car and you turn the key, and, and sometimes you go... The world is a complex place. There are always ups and downs, and ritual is not... Ritual is a subtle art. Ross Nichols, who was one of the great 20th century writers and and practitioners in the field of Druidry, used to say that ritual is poetry in the world of action. And just as a well-written poem can crystallize a perception, can change the way you look at the world, so can ritual. Thus, it can accomplish certain things very, very powerfully. And then there are other things that you're not going to be able to accomplish with it. And there's, of course, a very large gray realm where sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But it's very common for people. And we, we live in an age where our expectations are shaped by technology. Okay? We think, okay, here's a button. I push it and ba-dum, 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 things happen. Right? Most of the universe isn't that way. Most of the universe doesn't work that way, and just trying to push buttons and make things happen is not always or even often a successful strategy. You have to relate. You have to participate in a relationship. Um, I I find this, for example, in, in the very physical process of gardening. I have a vegetable garden out back. And if you treat the garden as a machine, you don't necessarily get good results. If you treat it as a relationship, if you try to say, okay, what's going on in this relationship? What does the garden need? What do the plants need? What do I need? How can we interact in, in ways, ways that are mutually constructive? Then the garden thrives. And in the same way, ritual should not be thought of as a machine, especially not you know a kind of vending machine for getting the things you want. Ritual is a way of participating in relationships. If you do it right and if it's part of um if it's part of the flow it's part of the flow of your life, then it tends to yield good results but it tends to it's not omnipotent
1: mhm. So when does ritual become superstition? Is that when you are clinging and hoping to sort of press the button and make something happen?
0: Basically, the word superstition comes from a, a pair of Latin words, meaning to stand over. We'd say to hold over, to, to, to linger, linger on. Okay? Mm. A superstition is a ritual whose purpose is no longer remembered.
1: You've mm. lost the meaning,
0: you've lost the relationship, you've lost the point of it, you just have that, you know, push the button and maybe a goodie will come out.
1: Okay, just say that again. Ritual is...
0: Superstition is a ritual that's lost its meaning. It's lost its relationship where it's just – where it's descended into that kind of mechanical notion. Of course, many, many, many people have a superstitious attitude toward technology right now because all the, they, they, they're hammering the button trying to make the goodies come out. And even with technology, it's a relationship. You have to relate to it. You have to feed it. Mm.
1: Now, what about the placebo effect? Because that's another, uh, you know, maybe due to the medical industry, but it's very demeaned. But as a clinical hypnotherapist, I have to tell you that the placebo is the best thing ever. So that's what I think anyway. So, so... Yeah. Well, how do you respond when people say, oh, that's, you know, let's say you have a skeptic or, uh, you know, somebody saying, oh, what you're calling magic, that's just the placebo effect. How do you respond yeah, to that?
0: Just as I was thinking. Well, what we have here, if somebody brought out a medicine that costs essentially nothing and could pr- produce dramatic improvement in a very large percentage of every human illness, we'd be all over ourselves. Oh, my God, look at this wonder drug. The placebo effect will do that. Okay, the placebo effect is marvelous stuff. The problem, the one problem that we have is that most people, including most people in medicine, don't know how to use it. That placebo effect is a very important part of medical practice. It always has been. We say, okay, the mind has the capacity to cure itself or has the capacity to shape experience in these other ways. How do we optimize that? How do we make that more effective? How can we build a relationship with that aspect of ourselves so that we can amplify the placebo effect and use it to treat diseases? We can use it to change our lives. Marvelous stuff. This is the, what I, one of the things I routinely say to skeptics. And about the time I get to that point, they're kind of glazing over <laughs> and trying <laughs> to figure out what to say because, because so much of the modern, uh, I'll, I'll call it pseudo-skeptic because it's not actually skeptical. It doesn't actually look at everything individually and say, well, what about that? It's dogmatic materialism. Hmm. The idea that the only things that exist are lumps of matter. And that's a dogma, and anyone who disagrees with it has to be beaten until they they (laughs) accept it. Um, Right. Yeah, I'm not joking. Mm. And so, but the placebo effect, you know, that's, that's, as you say, a demeaning term for one aspect of the immense power of human consciousness Mm. over Mm. our bodies, over our circumstances, over our surroundings. So use it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Work so that, puppy.
1: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> now, ritual is another wonderful way that we can access those um uh altered states of consciousness at times where we where where the placebo effect can be an effect. I, I like the way Joseph Campbell talks about uh ritual where he says it's really us keeping up our end of the conversation with spirit or with the greater forces. Now I read in the Well of Gallabies your your blog about Uh, Druidry, magic, and philosophy, that uh, you kind of slipped in there a line where you said, I was doing a Druid communion ceremony, and I thought, like, record scratch, what? So here's a ritual. Now, okay, Druidry, it's pagan. It's uh, earth-based spiritual practice, is it not? watch
0: watch Watch the categories come out. Okay. Right. It's okay. A it's a space. Therefore, it can't have a communion ritual.
1: Well, so here's my questions. First of all, what are you communing with? What does the wine represent? What does the bread represent?
0: Okay. We can do this. Um, in, the, in the tradition of Druidry that I, that I study and practice and teach, the two great currents of metaphysical energy, if I can use that, that phrase. for the moment, metaphysical, that energy? With, okay. metaphysical energy? Metaphysical energy are the solar current and the Tillerate current. There's a descending current from the sun, and there's a rising current from the center of the earth. We, we stand at the intersection of those of those energies. Okay, What, do, what, what does one commune with in a Druid? commune? Certainly the universe, of course. Mm. The physical as well as spiritual universe. We don't draw a hard line between those, of course. Mm-hmm. But so the wine... We call, basically we call down the solar current from the heavenly powers into the wine. We call up the, the telluric current from the earthly powers into the bread. We unite them and take that into ourselves as, as a token of our unity, our, our communion with those forces, with the cosmos that bring into being.
1: Beautiful. I love it. That's great. Okay.
0: It's, it's a lovely ceremony.
1: It sounds lovely. Now, we had an earlier conversation, and in that you said that Druidry has a pretty uh, lovely tradition of just borrowing from whatever works because it, of course, was broken up um, uh, and it's been rebuilt since the 18th century. And one of the things you said is you know, y- you have within Druidry not just a cordial Um, atmosphere, let's say, or relations between religions, but also among, um, uh, you know, the self and many deities or forces in the unseen realms, That, that there isn't those labels, as you said, the categories. Now, do you have, though, any concerns about sort of superficiality or cultural appropriation, spiritually speaking? Like, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you uh, use, what principles do you use to borrow respectfully from other traditions? Okay,
0: okay, the first, now, first of all, of course, if you ask three Druids, you get at least five answers. Ours is not a, a, a dogmatic tradition. We, there's not a lot of uniformity. There is no authority on matters of faith or morals that everyone has to listen to. So I speak entirely as myself here. Okay. Um, I personally do not borrow anything um, from living tradition if the people who hold that tradition have made it clear they don't want borrowing to happen. Mm. That's the case, for example, of a lot of Native American traditions. Mm mm-hmm. You know, if if you're European American, they, you know, they've suffered enough, frankly, and they don't want you, you know, given that we've taken everything else, the you know, they want to say, no, you don't get to take our, our religion, you don't take, get to take our spirituality. They have the right to say that. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't mess with that. Um, anything else? Normally speaking, philosophy, if it's been published, if it's written, if it's something you can read and be inspired by, that's one thing. It's out there. Okay, so I can read Lao Tzu. I don't claim to be a Taoist master. If I were to if I were to decide to take up the practice of Taoist spirituality, I'd find somebody who actually was qualified to teach it and learn from them. Um, the various things that have flowed into AODA, the, the Ancient Order of Druids in America, the order that I had, um, it... It was a complex scene in the 20th century, and especially in the middle years when there weren't that many people interested in this sort of thing, and there was a lot of exchange between different organizations. We actually got the communion ceremony from a from the Universal Gnostic Church, but that was they they they, offered, they basically um, well what what happened was there were a lot of people who were members of both. And so this, this, it was it a you know, they borrowed some things from us, we borrowed some things from them, and just it was all very congenial. So but you know, it's, it's like anything else. Traditions are like like you wouldn't walk into somebody's home and walk and you know, pick up pick up something owned and walk away with it without asking permission. Mm-hmm. Traditions mm-hmm. are the same way. There are people who are very eager to share their traditions. There are, there are traditions that mm-hmm. are very eager to share. Mm-hmm. And so I tend to—that's what I tend to do. Typically, is, is either either you know focus on the on what I've actually inherited, by way of the, the druid order that I had, which is pretty immense, um, or work with materials that are that have been put out there that are there for you know the, that are that are there for the taking, or that the traditions are saying, okay, here you go, mm-hmm. have, have okay. fun.
1: Now, you talked in a really great blog post on Well of Gallabies about um, sort of that historical context of when, you know, first we had traditional religions and then we sort of branched into or there was the, the uh, emergence of the prophetic religions. And these days there's kind of an us and them atmosphere in the spiritual discourse, you know, this is my religion, and you can't, like, you wouldn't often see a Christian Muslim, for instance. You point to the origin of that us and them uh, atmosphere as being, because we abandoned the gods of nature.
0: Okay. Um, Certainly, the abandonment of the gods of nature was an important part of what, it was one of the things that happened in that process. Of the construction of prophetic religions, um, you had starting about the sixth century B.C.E. You had various people popping up saying, "I know the truth about the cosmos." Um, in in west, basically west of Afghanistan, they were usually saying there is only one God, and I've got him. <laughs> and, um, and you know, you you shouldn't worship anybody else. Um, you shouldn't have reverence for anything but my God and my teachings. And that was that was very popular for a while.
1: So that would be, you know, like people who are following then Buddha or Jesus or Muhammad, um, yeah. that sort of thing.
0: Exactly, and so that's that's why a, a prophetic religion obviously involves implies there being a prophet, mm-hmm. and so there's somebody, whether it's Paul of Tarsus, whether it's Muhammad, whether it's the Buddha. Um, whether it's Zhang Daoling, who founded religious Taoism in China, and so on and so on and so on. You have all these these single human figures who become the focus of these prophetic religions. I assume there was a point to it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That the universe had some reason for for wanting these these things to crop up when they did. And the, the, the religious... History of the world has been dominated since that time by people killing people over um, which of these prophets might be true. And
1: right. So has a civilization that you know of, has one ever reinstated the gods of nature and said, whoa?
0: Oh yeah, India. India was, con- was, India, almost all, India was pretty much completely Buddhist during the, um, what was it, the, the, the Gupta period, the Gupta Empire, um, it was pretty much completely Buddhist. And then very gradually that sort of weakened, and you find Buddhists in India these days, but not, not that many of them, people went back to the gods and goddesses.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think is the impact of that? I guess I'm asking because I'm that curious, would be a, what would, would be the impact of our culture in the West, do you think, if we reclaimed the gods of nature?
0: Well, the, the, what I would hope for is the emergence of a kind of thing like what, um, like the religious scene in Japan these days? Japan Buddhism arrived there, but there was a well-established religion in nature, Shinto. And for political reasons, the Buddhists couldn't like exterminate. Well, of course, Buddhism is one of the least bloodthirsty of the prophetic religions, so they weren't really into the extermination thing. But for political reasons, they had to get along with the Shinto priests and priestesses, and so on. And so, what you have there is a situation where people go to the Buddhist temple for one set of spiritual needs, and to the Shinto shrine for another. And mm. it's all it's so cool. Mm-hmm. I think we could have that. It just requires the, the 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 leaders and followers of of you know the popular prophetic religions to get down off the high, their high horse, except the fact that the universe is not a simple thing it cannot be fit within the cover of any set of sacred scriptures and this and and the ability to say you know this particular set of my spiritual needs is met in this church but this other set for this other set there i need to go to this temple and i think we could achieve that i think if we did achieve that we would see a society which was much less blind to the consequences of its action on the world of nature This much less blind to whole systems into their effects and might be a little less prone toward that, the, the dissent, which happens on both sides of the political spectrum, into the kind of doctrinal fist-pounding, I know the truth, you are utterly forsaken and evil, and I'm going to yell at you until you agree with me, mm-hmm. as though that ever works
1: hmm mm-hmm. Now, in the long descent, well, it might actually have been on the blog first. I'm not sure exactly where I learned this. I think it was from the long descent. But you have a philosophy, I, I would almost call it a rule of thumb, about how we could uh, move forward in the face of declines and a time when uh, we want to live more sustainably, let's put it that way, in a nutshell. And that is learn one thing, save one thing, give up one thing. If there were two to three rituals that you'd want us to preserve, if people could save one thing and one would be a ritual, let's say you're the benevolent leader of the future of humanity, (laughs) and you're saying, here's some rituals that will really have meaning, what would you want to preserve for the future?
0: (laughs) No. When you ask a druid that, you know you're not going to get a straightforward linear answer. <laughs> but there's I want to hear it called, anyway. <laughs> now, 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 there's a concept called dissensus. It's the opposite of consensus. And not mine, it's it um, Ewa Ziarek, who is a, a Polish um, postmodern literary theorist, came up with this idea. The deliberate embrace of diversity. Don't, you know, consensus, everyone gets together, they come up with one idea. Dissentus. Everybody goes off on their own and comes up with their own idea. Dissensus is the way that evolution works. Okay, members of a species don't all decide, okay, we're all going to do this. Everybody, there's genetic drift in every single direction, and sooner or later, one of those hits unexpected possibilities and goes, you know, and, and becomes something new. That's evolution. That's what I would say we need. And so I would say everybody should go out and find the ritual that means the most to them and preserve that. And we'll let the future sort it out. That's
1: great. Okay, then here's a question about practice. So this is a listener question. And by listener, I actually mean my husband and I talking over nachos and beer at the pub last night, and he asked me to ask you. That's
0: that's a great place to... That's an excellent place to get good questions.
1: Okay. So you've got a normal guy. Not necessarily a skeptic. A friendly audience, but totally normal. Not going to be going to a shamanic drum weekend. Not going to (laughs) be... Nothing like that. No sweat lodges. Uh And... But they would like to, uh, have at least a chance, increase their odds of perhaps experiencing something spiritual. Like say, <laughs> let's say about a third of people have a tendency to, t- towards it. And then there's like a bunch of people who just kind of never open up to it. So, so if, if a totally normal guy wanted to expand or enhance his chances of experiencing something Beyond his normal consciousness, what would be the practice or practices you'd recommend okay. they start with?
0: Okay. First of all, we need to take a step back and say, have you you've ever seen one of the a picture of like a three-year-old very nervously dipping his or her toe into like a wading pool going, oh my God, is it going to be too cold? These questions always remind me of that. Okay. Secondly, there are no normal guys. There guys who pretend to be no. There, there are none. There, there, I have never met a normal human being. I don't think they exist. They're as mythical as unicorns. Okay, everybody has something unique about them. That's 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 a thing of interest because if there were normal people, oh, good heavens, how boring they would be. So, um, but so we have a guy who's pretending to be normal because that's what he's been taught, and first thing he needs to do is sit down and spend a good long time thinking about why, what, what does he actually want in the situation. A fair number of people who go into this, what they actually want is to prove that there's nothing there. And you can do that quite readily by just um, drawing back and redefining. I've watched people go through the most impressive gyrations saying, I'm really interested in spirituality, but they're, what they're really interested in is proving that it's not real for them. And so they get into all of these these uh contra rotating messes that um you know where they and they end up going away disappointed feeling because they they have not succeeded in proving or what have you now, if somebody is actually feeling that draw feeling the draw towards spirituality and just being kind of uncomfortable, that's another matter um in terms of basic practices. There's a there's a ritual that we have in AODA called the sphere of protection. Okay, it's a very basic ceremony. The simplest form can be done in like 10 minutes, and what we highly recommend is that people do that once a day.
1: Now, the sphere of protection, you actually get really nicely into that in ritual magic for the solo practitioner. Is that the name of that book?
0: No, the book, the book, the book you'd want for the sphere of protection is the Druid Magic Handbook in print and readily available. So, the spirit, you, so you learn the Sphere of Protection, you practice it daily, you'd go through the usual changes, which means at first it's, I have no idea what I'm doing, I'm fumbling around, waving my hands in the air, this is baffling, then it's, wow, this is kind of neat. Then usually someplace between about three weeks into it, about three months into it, there's the inevitable why am I wasting my time doing this? Nothing is happening, no lightning bolts are springing for my fingertips. Everybody hits that point. And it's the ones who keep on going through that, out the other side, and they're suddenly going, whoa, something's happening. Yeah,
1: this stuff actually works.
0: Yeah, Yeah, and, and that's the point where people head the hills. That's the point where people <laughs> will suddenly drop out of the whole thing and insist that it's complete nonsense and rah rah blah, rah, rah, because they realize that it's actually doing something. And that's mm-hmm. a, that is a terrifying moment. Seriously, in a, in a society that is as anti-spiritual as this one, to do a ritual and feel the change in the atmosphere is terrifying. But once you embrace that fear and, and accept it and say, okay, I'm scared, but I'm going to keep on doing this, then doors swing open and you can start getting into some very interesting places.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, too, it becomes terrifying because once you, let's say, use a phrase from popular culture, once you see the matrix, when, once the illusion dissolves before your eyes, it becomes very difficult to maintain the veneer of normalcy that you've been, you know, carefully crafting your whole life. And uh, when the whole world is designed to make you feel crazy and you're like, but I actually just experienced reality. How can this be?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this is one of the reasons why it's a very good idea if you're going to do this thing to be in touch at least, you know, online or what have you with other people who are doing the same thing. Mhm, mm-hmm. Because that way you can, I mean, I, I, I feel, I feel comments like this all the time. Somebody will go, I was, you know, I, I was doing this and, and something happened. I'm not really sure what, but, and they're, they're, they're shivering. You talk them down. You, you let them know, okay, this is a normal event. Everybody goes through that. I remember when, when back you know back in the nineteen seventies when I was going through the, my the very first phases of my own training, hitting that moment and going through the boom, 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 back and forth in you know mm-hmm. it, less than a minute between oh my God, oh my God, something happened, <laughs> oh boy, something happened. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Okay, so last question. It's you uh, around the fire with your favorite beverage and three people, living or dead, and you're talking about magic and ritual and philosophy. Who would you want to be sitting with around that fire?
0: Um, The first one would have to be Manly Palmer Hall.
1: Manly Palmer Hall.
0: Manly Palmer Hall, who was one of the very great American occultists of the 20th century. He was born, I think in nineteen o one died um in what's i think nineteen ninety um, Did you ever meet them? No, I never had a chance to meet the guy. Um I probably could have made a chance, but i was I was living in Seattle at the time he was in Los Angeles, and I was very shy about seeking out people. Mm. Very shy about seeking people out back in those days. Um, as for the others, um are we going to assume language barriers aren't an issue? Yes, <laughs> okay. Because that um another one would be Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche Nietzsche okay. who was uh, who was an amazing cat I, his his books are very much worth reading, and very few people read them these days because he 's not the simple figure that most people um make him out to be. He was a very complex, very rich, very fascinating thinker who who of course eventually went hopelessly insane, mm. which I think adds, adds to the <laughs> let's see and then
1: can i ask you which book if somebody wants to it's their first my first nietzsche what would be the book
0: let's see what would be the best one um probably the gay science the gay science the gay science is the usual translation this is before gay had its current term currently right. of course um that would be the one where i would start and just plunge right in and know that you're going to be completely lost. <laughs> okay, and you because it's not it's not dense. He he tends to write in couple of page chapters or even brief sayings, and you just stop and think about that and go whoa. So, um, Nietzsche, and then for a third, who would be, for a third, probably. Just now, I know you, if you asked me three days from now, it would probably be something completely different. It would probably be Ross Nichols, who was a very important Druid thinker of the of the last century, who again I never met, but whose books, especially his book, um, the Book of Druidry, has been very very influential.
1: That sounds like it would be a very lively conversation.
0: I think it would be or a make, heck of a conversation.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, I said that was the last uh, question, but actually your answer about Nietzsche got me thinking. Uh, okay, go another really fascinating thing that you talk about uh, is that uh, we we expect or, uh, I don't know if we expect, but the, the what has sort of occurred is that in our culture, science tries to ask the questions or answer the questions where, in fact, the tools of spirituality are, are more equipped for that, and sort of vice versa, that we use the tools of spirituality to try to explain science. And I'm just curious, you know, like, when you're saying we need to understand what the tools of science are good for versus what the tools of spirituality are good for, what would be an example of a question that science tries to answer where spirituality is more appropriate?
0: Okay. Okay. Um. There's, there's that's a, that's a target rich environment science can only ask can only functionally ask a question if you can control all the variables okay so any question having to do with human consciousness science is at a complete loss because you can't control the variables okay the the scientific method works by coming up with ways where you can get every variable under control except uh, fixed, except one, which you can vary up and down, and then you see how the whole system responds. Um, that's how you do things in science. If you can't do that, you're pretty much stuck. One of the reasons that psychology has been um, so unsuccessful over the years, but in at the, least in the scientific psychology, has been that you can't control the variables of the human mind. You know, you can't get, say, a, a sample of 100 people, all of whom have had exactly the same upbringing and exactly the same experience.
1: Right. OK, so what's the flip side of that? So what would be a question that spirituality tries to answer that they should really just leave alone because that's a question for, for the tools of science?
0: Um, it, the, again, the obvious one is how did human beings evolve? How, or let's say, how old is the world? It was not created in the year 6000 BC, folks was in 4004 B.C., October 23rd, 9 in the morning, I think is the, what was the date that somebody came up with, Archbishop Usher came up with out of the Bible. The world is much older than that. Sci- you know, How did evolution happen? How did species come into being? Now, that there may have been metaphysical dimensions of that process is another matter and one that science is not equipped for. But if you want to know about geology, you want to know about evolutionary biology, listen to the scientists. They study this stuff all the time. They know what they're talking about.
1: Well, this has been a very lively conversation for me. I really appreciate you coming on the Numinous Podcast, John. And I I, I, really love your work and continue to recommend it and uh, really appreciate how much, uh, how generous you are in sharing your teachings with the world. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. And I appreciate being on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun.
1: I think the line I'm going to remember from that interview forever, actually, is, Ritual is poetry in the world of action. Just beautiful. I want to thank John Michael Greer for coming on the show, and thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to keep up with me, you should go to my website, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A, and just sign up at the bottom of the website for my upcoming newsletters. It might be of interest to you to know that this is the second-to-last episode of the Numinous Podcast for now— There will be one more episode coming out to make a nice even 60, and then the show is going on indefinite hiatus as I move on to other creative projects. It may include either more episodes of this podcast or another podcast or a different series. Who knows? So again, just go to my website, CarmenSpaniola.com, to keep up with me in the future. Until next time, take care.